Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Ben Albensi, who is a professor of pharmacology and therapeutics at the University of Manitoba. His lab at St. Boniface Hospital focuses on understanding the neurobiological basis of normal memory and how memory gets impaired in dementia. His lab studies nuclear factor kappa B, which is a key mediator of brain information thought to be involved in Alzheimer's disease. Welcome, Ben. Welcome. How are you? Thank you. Uh, I want to uh, just, uh, so the, the major focus of your lab is to understand the biological basis of memory and to also understand what happens to memory when it's impaired. And your focus has been on molecular signaling pathways and mechanisms that could be targeted with promising therapeutics for enhancing memory or for preventing or reversing diseases such as Alzheimer's stroke or head trauma. So I want to start with one of your papers. Um, it's entitled uh, Gene Targets of NF-kappa-B in Synaptic Plasticity, Memory, and Navigation, in which you say, although traditionally associated with immune function, the transcription factor, nuclear factor kappa-B, has garnered much attention in recent years as an important regulator of memory. You want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, so I got involved with NF-kappa-B research uh, probably over 20 years ago while I was still a postdoctoral fellow in Mark Matson's lab. Mark Matson's quite well known. He's the most highly cited neuroscientist in the world. Uh, I was working at his lab in, at the University of Kentucky at the Sanders Brown Center on Aging, but shortly after I left, he moved to Johns Hopkins University and had also was a, a chief at the National Institutes of Health uh, located in Baltimore. So I really got exposed to NF-kappa-B as a member of his lab. And at that point in time, Mark was really hypothesizing some very, uh, some very unusual and, and almost controversial uh, statements about how NF-kappa-B worked. And so NF-kappa, I'll have to back up just a yeah, few yeah. seconds. NF-kappa-B was first discovered by David Baltimore, who's at Caltech, um, 
when he was investigating uh, immunity and, and B cells in the immune response. And that was around 1986. And so when I was in Mark's lab, you know, so there's a, at least several years that had transpired from uh, Dr. Baltimore discovering NF-kappa-B, but really Mark kind of uh, dove into the area of looking at brain uh, brain activity, not the immune system, but really NF-kappa-B's role in brain activity. And, and so early on, a lot of the work with NF-kappa-B involved cancer and inflammation and the immune system. But Mark was looking at its role in brain uh, brain function, mm -hmm. and and up until that time, NF kappa B was really thought to be a pretty negative thing, and really a mediator of inflammation, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a transcription factor, which of course is a, a specialized protein um, that's responsible for for transcription of genes and. And in most cases, turning genes on, in some cases, turning genes off. So that's how I got started in some of this work 20 years ago. Yeah, so, um, so it is known to be very active in, in the immune system response to cancer and other things. And um, what, what happened was you, you found, you and others found this in the brain, right? And, and started exploring uh, how it is impacting uh, those sites, right? Yeah, so my work, you know, I got an, interested in intelligence and memory and cognition uh, many years ago, even before I was a postdoctoral fellow, and that's why I, I worked on a PhD in neuroscience. And so in Mark's lab, he gave me the opportunity, uh, he brought me to his lab to start up some electrophysiology, and I worked with an, a, an experimental paradigm that's called LTP, mm -hmm. which stands for long-term potentiation, and it's really a a paradigm to explore mechanisms of memory uh, and plasticity. And so I, I was interested in looking at molecules that regulate memory, and, and so it made sense. Mark was not an electrophysiologist, but he was a well-known and, and very expert in uh, molecular neurobiology, and so it was a good fit for us. And so really Mark gave me this project and let me run with it to to see if TNF and NF-kappa-B, these molecules involved in inflammation, played any role in memory at all. And so I, I did an electrophysiological study using this paradigm I just mentioned, LTP. Yeah. And, and to make a long story short, I showed that it actually, using blockers of, of NF-kappa-B, I was able to block synaptic plasticity in the hippocampus. And this is the first time that was ever done. There was a study just a few months earlier in the crab that also implicated NF-kappa-B in memory, but I'm pretty sure my study was the first that was ever done in mammals showing that NF-kappa-B was required for memory and plasticity. So, so this study, uh, you, you demonstrated that it can block synaptic plasticity. So what, what, what is the outcome that, that could be measured? Well, actually, what I showed is that NF-kappa-B was required for synaptic plasticity. So we oh. used NF-kappa-B blockers. Yeah. So there are a variety of different blockers that uh, can inhibit NF-kappa-B activation or some at some point in the signaling pathway. And so I used uh, NF-kappa-B decoy DNA and I used SN50, another blocker of NF-kappa-B. And I showed that it impaired the uh, LTP and impaired potentiation. So in other words, the electrical response that one uh, observes in an LTP, the, the increase in voltage that's long lasting, 
I was able to block. And I also showed that it impaired LTD, long-term depression, which is a, a dynamic, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum of LTP. So these are both processes and mechanisms of synaptic plasticity that affect connectivity and network function. And, and I did it specifically in the hippocampus. So I measured things like population spike responses and EPSPs and all those things that geeky neuroscientists get excited about <laughs> yeah. uh, when they do molecular neurobiology. And so that was really the first uh, set of experiments we did. And, and following up on that over the years in my own lab, We've worked with NF-kappa BP50 knockout models, and we've also shown links to other factors. So, for example, NF-kappa B uh, activation is, is linked to EGR2 expression. We showed that in my lab a few years ago. And EGR is yet another transcription factor that's uh, been implicated in memory. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the one of the interesting things here, right? It seems to both activation and, and blocking of NF-kappa B uh, appears to have a lot of different effects, uh, not only in the body, but also in the brain. Some of them, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, some of them beneficial, some of them not so beneficial, said this year. That's exactly right. And I'd say for the most part, they're not beneficial. So for the most part, like I said earlier, NF-kappa B is really a mediator of inflammation. But these responses are cell-specific. And that's one of the things that Mark really was proposing about 20 years ago. And, and so to make a long story short, again, uh, so what he started to hypothesize and I followed up on is that NF-kappa B seemed to be actually neuroprotective and, and a mediator of memory in neurons, mm. but that in glial cells, and there are different types of glial cells in the brain, uh, the NF-kappa B activation was pro-inflammatory. So it was cell-specific. And that was one of the uh, reasons for its uh, dual activity. Mm. And then, of course, there's other aspects, too. There's differences in selectivity and not only a cell-specific context, but really uh, different elements of time-dependent um, aspects that affected selectivity and its activation profile. Right. So, so, so is inflammation uh, one of the issues? Um, so, it, you know, it has some, some beneficial effects, but when it gets involved, it, it often brings inflammation with it, right? Well, that's exactly right. And so 20 years ago or so, most people that studied Alzheimer's disease really high, were highly focused on amyloid plaques and the uh, constituent of plaques, which are uh, amyloid beta, and then tau and hyperphosphorylated tau. And these are the classic pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. And most people actually 20, 30 years ago were in one camp or the other. They didn't appreciate the fact that both uh, pathological hallmarks could be involved. It's kind of like there was a, a civil war going on. <laughs> but, but really now, the last couple of years, I think people are a lot more open-minded about this. And even the last year or so, there's just a lot of uh, activity looking at brain inflammation and, and the role of brain inflammation that's associated with plaques and tangles, uh, but how the you know inflammation playing a more direct role in Alzheimer's and dementia. Right, right. Uh, in this paper also, uh, Ben, you, you talk about its role in navigation and spatial memory, and these are in animal models. Uh, you want to talk a bit about that? Well, it's interesting because you know if you look about if you look at the evolution of NF kappa B, I, I like to look at the big picture. Yeah. 
And, and one of the things that really fascinated me about NF-kappa-B is not only did it have a, a dual role in both inflammatory responses, but also it was required for memory. What really intrigued me about it is the fact that it's an ancient protein. Mm. NF-kappa-B has been around since, since, we, uh, since we had single-celled organisms mm. uh, in, throughout the world before we, you know, in eukaryotic systems. And, and so one of the hypotheses that I've been forming over the years is that memory has not evolved necessarily as a tool to a, assist us in, in intellectual achievement. I mean, it has that function, yeah. but really memory evolved on a cellular level as an adaptive immune defense response. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of the position and view I've been taking the last couple of years to understand not only NF-kappa B in memory, but to understand how its disruption in, in Alzheimer's uh, came about. Mm. So really my, my hypothesis is that, that, that NF-kappa B is being so ancient really was a uh, part of the adaptive immune system response against uh, invading, uh, you know, pathogens and that sort of thing at the cellular level. And, and so we've co-evolved this innate immune response to that's been incorporated now with higher intellectual function. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the one issue with the brain and, and, and memory is that uh, it's an energy hog. So, so if you don't really have a need for it, I think there are some organisms, right, uh, Brian, uh, Ben, that uh, they get rid of their brain once their goals are uh, satisfied or something like that. It is interesting. There are so many different uh, interesting examples like that through the animal kingdom. And you probably know about the praying mantis and, yeah. and the sexual behaviors of these, inter, uh, these insects and that sort of thing. But the specific example that you're talking about, I'm not sure I, I understand exactly which animal you're referring to. I can't quite remember, <laughs> remember when. Oh, okay. Yeah, it came up in a discussion <laughs> that, you know, once the, once the animal gets to, you know, its intended goal, uh, because right. maybe attaching to some, some object, uh, so it, it, so brain was really used to navigate till that point, and when it oh, okay. accomplishes that, you know, at that point it can actually get rid of it because you know it, it doesn't really need it anymore. Yeah, I guess that's an interesting aspect, and I'm not quite aware of those studies. But my interest in navigation, really, I mean, we, again, if we look at human evolution and we think about memory assisting us in finding food and remembering where those food sources were, that's really where the link in navigation came in uh, it, it, from a uh, evolutionary perspective. Is that we had to remember that the uh, buffalo would would go to different areas or we, we had to remember that we could find food and use tools to find food. You know, it's a, a complicated learning and memory process that that's evolved over time. Yeah. That's not only that has improved human memory, but really that has coexisted with uh, navigational strategies. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, this all comes together. Um, you know, you have a focus on Alzheimer's disease. So another paper uh, is entitled Neuronal Gene Targets of NF-kappa B and the Dysregulation of, in Alzheimer's Disease. And uh, you say in this, uh, although better known for its role in inflammation, the transcription factor, nuclear factor kappa B, has more recently been implicated in synaptic plasticity, learning, and memory. We just talked about that. 
but as, as you mentioned, uh, it has um, not so beneficial effects uh, on some parts of the brain. And uh, there are some, uh, some indications that, um, you know, it gets involved in Alzheimer's, right? Well, that's right. In fact, if you look at amyloid plaques in, in uh, human brains after autopsy, you can find that NF-kappa B is actually co-localized uh, with the Alzheimer's plaques. Mm. So that, that's been shown in several studies now. So why is that? And we're not exactly sure, but, and it's, it's almost like asking the same question about amyloid beta. Why does amyloid beta exist? And in fact, some people have hypothesized amyloid beta, even though it's thought to be a, a, a toxin and associated with Alzheimer's, especially in the early stages, I mean, there are hypotheses and there's some evidence to support the notion that there's a neuroprotective function for amyloid beta. And so mm. some of that logic applies to NF-kappa B too, because like you said just a few seconds ago, NF-kappa B has target genes. So there's hundreds and hundreds of genes that NF-kappa B can interact with and, and that really span a quite a large variety of different types of biological functions. Uh, and some of those include memory. Yeah. Uh, so there are there are waves of activity, and there's different there's different levels of complexity that's associated with timing and uh, and different aspects of turning genes on and off. You know that that make the whole NF-kappa B activation process very complicated. Yeah. Uh, you know, you say in the paper that NF-kappa B is also activated after learning and memory formation in vivo uh, without knowing, uh, knowing a lot about it. You know, this sounds a bit like, is it, is it sort of a waste product of, of the learning and memory process? Well, what we did find in the early study that I did when I was in Mark Matson's lab is that it affected LTP, and that was the induction of LTP. Mm. So that was a very early phase of memory encoding. Now, what we showed a few years ago when I got my own lab is that we used a NF-kappa B P50 knockout mouse model, a genetically engineered mouse yeah. that, that knocked out the P50 subunit. And NF-kappa B, of course, has three subunits. And the most typical combination is a combination of P50, P65, and I-kappa B. And when we knocked out P50, we found impairments in late LTP. Mm. And late LTP is interesting because this occurred four or five hours after the induction of LTP. And it's late LTP that's associated with uh, gene expression. Mm. So, so what I'm saying is that NF-kappa B's uh, role in memory is, is, uh, has multiple roles. It's involved in the, uh, it might be involved in triggering the so-called immediate early genes yeah. that, that happen very quickly, very rapidly, but it also plays a role in uh, triggering other tr uh, factors uh, that come, you know, several hours later that are involved in gene expression. So, in fact, if you look at some studies of NF-kappa B, it seems like there's a pattern that evolves and that there's two general waves of activity. There's the immediate response that can occur within the first 30 minutes or so, or even shorter. And then there's another wave of activity four or five, six hours later. And NF-kappa B seems to be involved in both. Okay. Okay. That's the data from our lab shows that and other labs support that notion. And the latter activity tend to be neurotoxic or is other way around? No, okay. not, not in the context of memory. And again, you know, our, when we're looking at memory, we're usually re 
recording from neurons. Yeah. It's really just when the uh, microglia and other types of glial cells get involved that we have the pro-inflammatory response. Mm. Um, there are other investigators also that have looked at other forms of memory, like the reconsolidation of memory. So recall of memory and NF-kappa B appears to play a role in reconsolidation of memories too. So it is a very complicated animal to study uh, since it has these dual roles and it seems time specific and it also seems to be cell specific. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like a package that nature put a lot of stuff on and, uh, and it became really complex, it sounds like. So you say it's either neuroprotective or neurotoxic and that may be actuator specific by the action. Yeah, most of the studies that I've seen show that in neurons, it is uh, connected to neuroprotective pathways. It's really when the glia get involved that you have this pro-inflammatory response in the cytokines that are uh, being generated um, that contribute to the inflammatory response. But, you know, we have to remember that, that early inflammation is not a bad thing and it's part of our healing. Yeah. It's part of the healing response, part of the immune response. It's only chronic inflammation that, that tends to be uh, unwanted and, and is also central to not only Alzheimer's, but to cancer and other chronic disease. So it's those early stages. So overall, though, lot, there's been a lot of drug development over the years trying to block NF-kappa B. Um, and, and that's done to, you know, to really target, uh, to block cancer and, and, uh, and other inflammatory responses. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so you also say here that it has been implicated in maintaining neuronal homeostasis in which neurons adapt their activity and efforts to preserve the stability of the neural networks. So, you know, it's sort of a regulator um, of the entire process, looks like. Well, that's correct. And in fact, the term that's been applied is it's been considered a master regulator. Mm. So there are different classes. Like I said earlier, there are hundreds of different target genes that NF-kappa B is involved in activating. And, and you can break that down into different classes. If you go to uh, Dr. Gilmore's site, website at Boston University, he has a very nice website where he talks about NF-kappa B activation and lists all the activators and all the genes that are involved and also lists not only the activators of NF-kappa B, but also um, inhibitors of NF-kappa B. So it's a very nice website to go visit. That's Dr. Gilmore at Boston University. And so you can see from looking at his website, there are really hundreds of target genes that play different roles. And in many cases, they are uh, somehow uh, negative roles because they do involve uh, inf inflammation and cytokines and, and that sort of thing. Right, right. Yeah, I want to shift gears then and go to, um, you have a paper uh, entitled, Dementia is a Growing Public Health Concern in Canada. And this epidemic is linked to huge human and economic costs. Uh, and uh, I think you, you looked at, uh, sorry, the, you, you, the, the title is Future Trends and the Economic Burden of Dementia in Manitoba, specifically. Do you want to talk a bit about uh, that and the, and the statistics that you're using? Well, it's well, it was a statistical analysis done actually by one of my friends and colleagues, uh, Dr. Uh, Banny. Uh, here in Manitoba, he was still here. He he left, and uh, 
he, I think he's in Ontario right now working, I forget what university he's at, but he did a statistical analysis of dementia in Manitoba for the government. He also had a joint appointment at the University of Manitoba. So we co collaborated on this paper to look at some of the overall statistics of dementia in Manitoba and what it was gonna cost the province going forward. And really the costs are staggering. And you know, we talk about the COVID pandemic. Well, Alzheimer's disease and dementia, related dementias are really another pandemic that we have to deal with. It, it's very interesting because if you look at all the, the leading causes of death, like stroke and heart attack and different cancers, we've actually been making great headway mm -hmm. with defeating those. We've actually reduced the occurrences or you know, the, the uh, frequency of those chronic diseases or conditions over the years. Yeah. We've made great progress, but with Alzheimer's disease, it's in the other direction. Right. So it's actually rising. So it's really the next pandemic and it's more of a silent pandemic um, in many cases, but it's affecting every country throughout the world. And so we have the same issue here in Manitoba um, and the Canadian government is nothing like the US government in terms of volume of dollars and how much funding they have to do research. So that it's a bit of a, a very uh, delicate position to be in. And it's not just a matter of funding research, it's also a matter of funding Alzheimer's care. Yeah. And it's the type of care that we need in, in rest homes, personal care homes, assisted living facilities, be, because again, those numbers are growing, not decreasing. Right, right. And, and I, I remember, I don't have it in front of me, uh, Ben, but uh, you were, I think, projecting many, many billions of dollars in total economic costs just for Manitoba, right? Just, just from uh, Alzheimer's. Yeah, if you, add up, if you add up every aspect of care, research care, yeah. and how it affects uh, caregivers and, and caregivers' families and the healthcare system, the costs are really astronomical. And so that, that was the point we were trying to make in the paper, uh, is that we, we don't, we're not quite cognizant of if, of if we start totaling all these costs, how astronomical the costs can be if we don't start doing something about this now rather than waiting until 20 years ago. Because like other infectious disease, it, you know, it's an exponential growth curve. And that's the problem. Yeah, it's on an exponential growth curve, uh, not only in Manitoba, not only in Canada, but like you say, all around the world. And uh, as the population gets older, um, uh, granted, there is a strong genetic component here, I would imagine, right, in Alzheimer's, but uh, the population that, are, that is expected to be affected by it is quite, quite high overall, right? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the genetic component. So there's a lot of good work coming out of uh, Rudy Tanzi's lab at Harvard on uh, the genetics of Alzheimer's disease, and he's gotten quite famous because of it. Uh, there are four genes implicated in early onset Alzheimer's, which is the type you get before you're 60. Yeah. And then in terms of late onset, uh, the type that one gets after the age of 65, there's one gene that's been studied quite extensively, and that's ApoE4. And he's done a lot of work with many of these genes. But most of the studies I've seen coming out of his lab and other labs suggest that the genetic component really only accounts for about eight to 10% of the population. Mm. So that's a little bit surprising. So the other 90% really is a contribution of both uh, interaction of genetics and the environment. Mm. 
or even just the environment by itself. So so-called sporadic forms of Alzheimer's. Um, so we, you know, but that could change. I mean, scientists all over the world are studying hundreds of other genes. I mean, even if there's only four or five genes right now that have solid evidence, there's still some evidence that other genes are involved. So that number, that 10% number could go up over the years once more evidence is collected. Yeah. So environmental and, and behavioral effects. So you have another paper, Ben, on uh, chronic dietary creatine enhances hippocampal dependent spatial memory, bioenergetics, and levels of plasticity-related proteins, again, associated with uh, NF-kappa-B. Uh, you want to talk about the, the dietary aspects of this and uh, how that might have an impact? Well, especially a country like Canada that doesn't have the same volume of funding to treat Alzheimer's disease. You know, there's been a kind of a um, an initiative in Canada to look at more preventative measures for limiting dementia as opposed to treating uh, late stage dementia. And so and so I've got influenced by some of that living here. And so, so we have several Alzheimer's programs in my lab, and some of those are to look at preventative dietary supplements. And so over the years, we've, we've tested creatine, which is an over-the-counter over product you can buy at the grocery store in the vitamin section. We've looked at choline. Currently, we're looking at flaxseed. Um, and there are other molecules, of course, that you find in foods. And uh, so we've been looking at creatine. And, and, and so the other thing we've been doing the last several, seven or eight years, is to look at mitochondrial function. Yeah. And the mitochondria, of course, are an organelle that supply all the energy to the cell in the form of ATP. And so in one of the papers I think that you've been looking at, we show directly that creatine enhances mitochondrial function. So it helps with you know, brain metabolism. And, and it's interesting, we just published a paper a few months ago showing that, that not only does it enhance mitochondrial function, but if we, if we do the same experiment and Alzheimer's mice, so genetically engineered transgenic mice, we've shown that females um, actually can benefit from creatine, but we don't see the same benefit in the male Alzheimer's mice. And we're still trying to figure that out. And, and so, and we're doing some of that work in parallel with other studies in which we actually found sex-based differences in mitochondrial function, which surprised us. And we got major funding to to look at that as well. And so we've, we've discovered that we see changes in mitochondrial function in female Alzheimer's mice as early as two months. And, you know, mice live to be two or three years old. Mm. And so that was really surprising to us. So this is pre-menopause mm. that we found these uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, which really uh, leads one down uh, another path in terms of an explanation for why uh, women might get Alzheimer's disease more frequently than men. Yeah, that, that's so. I didn't know this, Ben, before reading the, the. So women are disproportionately affected affected in AD, and yeah. So what is the what is the differential between uh, men and women in terms of incidence? Well, in the U.S. and Canada, it's about two thirds of all those with Alzheimer's are women, mm -hmm. and so again, it's interesting because before menopause women are at very low risk for Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. It's after menopause is when the risk goes up several times. And, and we believe that it's related to sex hormones. And there's evidence for this because after menopause, estrogen decreases uh, dramatically. 
But if you look at male sex hormones, we have a gradual decrease. And so there's a correlation between uh, the onset of menopause and the onset of Alzheimer's that is an important correlation and it's not necessarily causative. And, but, you know, I have to tell you our data so far that we've generated suggests that it's not, it can't be entirely hormonal because if we're seeing this mitochondrial dysfunction uh, before menopause occurs, that suggests that the mitochondria are playing a role and the metabolism is playing a role in these sex specific differences too. And that's exactly what we're studying right now and that we have funding for mm -hmm. to try to figure this out. Um, so that's part of it. I mean, the other part of it, of course, is genetic. Yeah. We haven't we haven't dived into that. But the interesting fact about genetics and Alzheimer's, especially if you're talking about metabolism, is that we actually inherit all of our mitochondrial DNA from our mothers. Yeah. And so that could that could be playing a role that that we haven't explored yet or that other labs haven't really spent enough time with yet um, that might have some influence over why more women than men uh, get Alzheimer's over the long term. Mm. And, and clearly, um, the late onset, which is the, which is I would imagine is the biggest component of it, uh, is a function of age. Um, and so. So the, the fact, the, just the fact that women live longer uh, should not should not be that that is not the issue, right? It is much more than that. Well, it, initially that's what people thought it yeah. was because women live longer. But you know, um, the workforce has changed over the last twenty years, and and women are developing more heart disease. Mm. As women, as there's more equity in the workplace. And as women take more leadership roles, it seems like heart disease and other stress-related diseases have increased in women. Mm -hmm. So longevity by itself doesn't seem to be the primary explanation for why women get Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the reason for us to exploring some of these other hypotheses. Yeah, yeah. And and what percentage of the population, when you know, would you say has this mitochondrial dysfunction-related issues? Uh, I'm sorry, now, I'm not sure what, what you... What percentage of the population, you know, would you say, you know, would be affected by a mitochondrial dysfunction issue? Well, that's an that's a very interesting question because I'm actually a board director for Mito Canada yeah. and, and Mito Canada is involved in uh, primary mitochondrial disorders. And these are mostly genetic disorders. They're very rare and they mostly affect kids. And, and mo a lot of these kids don't survive... Uh, past 25 or so. And sometimes you'll have an older adult develop a primary mitochondrial disorder, but it's not as, as common. But again, these are rare disorders. But that's in terms of the genetic-based primary mitochondrial disorders. Mm -hmm. If you look at secondarily acquired mitochondrial dysfunction, we're talking about huge sectors of, pop of the population mm -hmm. because you can find mitochondrial dysfunction in cancer, in Alzheimer's disease, and diabetes, there's there's about 20 age-related uh, conditions that involve mitochondrial dysfunction. So every chronic disorder and even just normal aging involves mitochondrial oh, dysfunction. Okay. Yeah. So it's very interesting, really, because it becomes one of the factors associated with aging is uh, is that the mitochondria don't produce as much ATP in it. And there's a huge area of research just in normal aging to understand the implications of a mitochondria not working uh, as efficiently as they 
as they used to as we get older. And that's outside of just disease. Mm. So, so it, it, is, it is really a power producing uh, function, right, within the cell? Yeah, that's what it's really well known for is the ATP generation. But it has a lot of functions that unless you study mitochondria that you might not know about, it controls apoptosis, which is uh, programmed cell death. It's involved in calcium storage. Mitochondria are very interesting. You know, they actually move around. They're modal. Yeah. And, and so in memory, we've seen our, our unit has made movies of mitochondria moving around in the cell, and they actually move to sites of high energy demand. And so an example of that would be like at a synapse, where memories are being encoded. So when new memories are being formed, there's an energy demand. And these mitochondria are moving to these synapses uh, very rapidly to help deliver ATP and to help deliver calcium. Uh, so that's yet another kind of role it has, is this uh, shuttle, shuttling calcium around. Mm. So, so, so could we create some sort of a diagnostic, early diagnostic, Ben, if... If uh, you know the the mitochondrial dysfunction is implicated in a lot of different issues, uh, is it possible for us to create some sort of an early diagnostic that that you know might be useful? Well, that's an excellent question, and my lab has thought about that. And so I have a clinical trial we're conducting. It's with flaxseed, and one of the things we're going to be doing is collecting blood to look in inflammatory markers. But eventually, what we want to start doing is to look at mitochondrial markers in human blood. Yeah. And we have an instrument that, that allows us to do that, to measure mitochondrial function in, in viable mitochondria. Now you can't measure it directly in red blood cells, but you can measure the mitochondrial function in white blood cells. Mm -hmm. And there are protocols for doing that. And in fact, they do a lot of this at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia because they have a mitochondrial clinic there. So there are several protocols we've examined uh, that are used there for their mitochondrial clinic that we're hoping to, um, to utilize in our clinical trial at some point going forward. So, so just measuring mitochondrial function would be the first step, but then what we're hoping is that we can identify markers, biomarkers in the mitochondria that will give us predictive value. Yeah. And so that's what we need to identify. And we've already started doing some of that. So, you know, there are a lot of different things that mitochondria do. They fuse and they, and they undergo fission. So they're kind of like a cell that's replicating is that at some point in their life cycle, they make more of themselves or depending on stress and other environmental factors, they can actually consolidate and they, can get, they uh, get rid of debris. So they go through these cycles of fusion and fission, and these are controlled by different proteins. And so those proteins can be used as markers. And then, and, and then the other proteins associated uh, with just other aspects of function can be used as markers. So we're very interested and we're very concerned uh, about how these markers change in disease. And we're hoping that they have predictive value, especially after what I just told you a few minutes ago about how in female Alzheimer's mice, you know, the mitochondrial dysfunction occurs so early. So we, we have high hopes that mitochondrial uh, markers can be predictive of Alzheimer's disease later on. Yeah, yeah. So, so in conclusion, Ben, you know, as you learn more, more about NF-kappa B and its effects on uh, Alzheimer's and dementia more generally, um, 
what is your you know sort of gut feel if you look four or five years into the future alzheimer's is something that we have been trying to solve for 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 many decades now uh without a lot of success um what is your gut feel are, are we going to make sufficient progress in the next uh, five years i think so i think we often in Alzheimer's disease research often look at cancer as a model system. Yeah. And what we've learned in cancer over the years is that there are many different types of cancer. You can't just throw it in one bucket. Mm -hmm. and, and really to treat cancer effectively, you have to determine what type of cancer the person has. And I think that's the progress we're making right now is that we're starting to learn there are different types of dementia. And in fact, there are different types of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. And and so we have to start targeting these different types of Alzheimer's disease. Are they metabolic? Are they genetic? Are they a result of inflammation? Are they a result of an infection? There's an, actually a lot of new work uh, supporting the idea that Alzheimer's is caused by an infectious agent. And so once we identify the type of Alzheimer's disease, we can start using a better treatment regime. And, and, and so to that end, there's a lot of work not only trying to block and clear amyloid beta, but also looking at more specialized populations. I think the days are gone where we're just going to use males as a model for <laughs> clinical research. You know, we have to treat females and males differently. We also have to be very concerned about the, uh, the time, uh, the onset of a, a, a marker, and we have to pay more attention to uh, the possibility of using uh, combination treatments yes. that are time dependent. And so I think that's what we're going to see going forward is that we're going to be treating with certain things very early. We might be using this new drug Biogen has at early stages, but then for later stage disease, we might be using uh, other treatments and sometimes in combination. And we're going to have to really, it's the wave of personalized medicine, mm -hmm. right? Is that we're going to take the genetic constitution of the person into account their sex into account, their race into account. We're going to get a lot more specific and, and try to understand the pharmacokinetics more carefully uh, so that we can personalize treatment, uh, not, you know, as a function of race, sex, uh, and other variables so that, uh, and, and do all this in conjunction with the type of Alzheimer's that they have. Yeah, and it's an, it's an excellent point. Uh, just like cancer, uh, I would imagine, Ben, that uh, how the disease progresses could be very much individual dependent too, right? So that would then call for really intervention um, for the individual more customized. Well, that brings up another point we didn't have time to talk about, and that's all the variation that we see in dementia yeah. and in particular in Alzheimer's. And, and in behaviors, there's a lot of variation. And in pathology, we see variation, even how... Uh, amyloid beta expresses itself in male brains versus female brains, and the type of resilience and cognitive reserve that we see is different in males versus females. So yeah, there's a lot of things that come into play, a lot of moving parts. Yeah, I think um, that, so probably that's the, the variation and the diversity, both in terms of incidence as well as progression, is probably what is holding us back, both in cancer and in Alzheimer's. They seem to have some very common characteristics. Yeah, you're right. And again, I think the Alzheimer's field has been learning from cancer biology for years now, and we can continue to, uh, to do that. 
And also just to design clinical trials more efficiently, I, I think we're going to get, we're getting better at that very quickly. Um, going forward, we're just going to have better clinical trial design that I think will help uh, reveal treatments that, that are showing benefit that right now perhaps we're missing because the tests and the, the design of the trials aren't specific enough or sensitive enough. Yeah, yeah. This has been excellent, Ben. Thanks so much for spending time with me. And uh, well, thank you with uh, all the research you're doing in Canada. Okay, very good. Thank you very much, Gil. Bye. Yeah, bye bye now.